Friends, this morning we're going to be in John's Gospel, back to the series that is taking all year for us here at Trinity. If you're visiting with us this morning, as, as several of you are, I want to go ahead and introduce you to what we're doing here. So we, for, for one year, are taking one of the oldest accounts of who Jesus is, one of the oldest records of the things that he said and the things that he did, uh, an account that has come down to us from one of his own followers, a man named John. It's come down to us as, uh, as an argument to us to believe in Jesus. Near the end of the book, John tells us why he's written everything he's written. He says, I've written these things so that you might believe, and that believing you might have life through this man. And so every week, what we do is we take the next section in this book, and we try to understand what is it in this section that could help us believe in Jesus. We know every little story, every little detail, every word that Jesus and anyone else says, John has put here out of all the things that he could have written to help us believe in Jesus. So we want to understand what is it here, what does this passage say to us that could help us believe and, and why? How does it help us believe? This morning, we're going to take a much larger than usual chunk of John's gospel because there's really no good way to divide this passage. It all hangs together around a common theme. And it's one of these sections, one of many in John, where John is describing to us a variety of ways that people respond to Jesus. So he wants us to believe in him. He's giving us reasons that we can believe in him. And one of the ways that he's doing that, though, is by helping us see how other people responded to him. He gives us positive examples of faith, but even more than that, more often than that, he gives us examples of people who don't like Jesus, who hear what he has to say, who see what he's doing, and reject him. Why would John give us so many examples of people rejecting what Jesus has to say? I think it's because John wants to warn us. He wants to give us some insight through examples, through case studies, if you will. He wants to give us insight into ourselves, into what might be inside of our hearts that keeps us from believing in Jesus, to help give us a new sense of awareness as we hear of Jesus and learn about him about what's going on in our hearts that might keep us from him. This passage this morning is especially aimed at that, to help us see why we might be tempted to reject Jesus and what will have to be true of us if we're ever going to embrace Jesus. I want to focus this morning on three ways to reject him and one way to embrace him. Now, because this passage is so long, we're covering 52 verses this morning. And because we're committed to reading every word of it, what I think I'm going to do this morning is, is read it as we come to it, right? Rather than read the whole chapter at once, uh, I'm just going to read it as, as, as I get to that section and try to explain it. So I'm going to start by reading the first several verses of John chapter 7. And for this reading, I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. It's just a, a physical way that we, that we acknowledge that his word is life to us, that when he speaks, life hangs in the balance. And we want to demonstrate that even by the way we listen to it as we stand together. I'm going to read to begin from uh, verses 1 to 5. Actually, I'm going to go actually, for this first reading, I'm going to actually go ahead and read through verse 9. This is the word of the Lord from John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now... The Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. 
for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. This is God's word. You can be seated. Three ways to reject Jesus. We've just read, I think, the first way to reject Jesus. First example of unbelief in our passage. Um, It comes from Jesus' own brothers. Now, this one really surprised me. And not just because they're his own brothers. And you'd think if anybody was going to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, his brothers would, right? They grew up with him. They saw him sort of honing his skills as this superhuman force. Surely they saw something growing up together in in their home that tipped them off that this was not just your average kid. But even his brothers don't believe in him. Bigger surprises is not just that it's his brothers who don't believe in him. The bigger surprise to me was what their unbelief looks like. It is not what you expect. Chapter 7 opens uh, just after there was this mass defection among Jesus' disciples. I don't know if you were here a couple of weeks ago when when one of our elders, Bill Hearman, preached on the the last section of chapter 6. It's this section where a lot of Jesus and his disciples come to a crossroads and they hear him him speaking to them in, in words that have started to turn them off. They realize they're not up for what he's offering them. And many of them turn away at the end. So, meanwhile, one of the big feasts of the Jews is being celebrated in Jerusalem. And Jesus' brothers think of this as a perfect chance for Jesus to rebound, right? I mean, these are his brothers who stuck with him. They didn't defect with everybody else at the end of chapter 6. They're still there. But they see their friends and acquaintances leaving Jesus. It looks to them like their brother's ministry is dwindling. And they want him to succeed, right? So they think what he's got essentially boils down to a marketing problem. What you have here is a marketing problem. You're not giving the people what they want. The people don't really know all of the power that you have. So you've got to get your name out there a little better. You've got to stop stop doing your works in this backwater of Galilee. And you've got to go to take, take this show on the road. Let's go to Judea to Jerusalem where the feast is going, where everybody's there. And let's give your disciples who just left you, let's try to win them back. Let's give them what they're looking for. Let's give them more of that stuff you showed when you turned 5,000 people's meal, when you turned a meal for 5,000 people from simple boys' lunch, from basically a glorified snack. Let's give them more of that. That's what they want. If you do these kind of things, if you have that power, do it openly. Show the world what you have. Now, Here's the interesting thing. On the surface, it seems like these are sincere concerns of followers who care for Jesus, who wants what, want what's best for him. They, I mean, again, like I said before, these, these are the ones who stuck around after everybody else left him. They want to see him succeed. And that's what's so surprising about John's description of them in chapter 7, verse 5. John says, Not even his brothers believed in him. They don't believe. They said these things. They made this case for Jesus to show his power more openly because they didn't believe in him. 
How does that work? They're a model of unbelief, not of faith. Why? We've got to pick up clues to answer that question. It isn't, there's, no, there's not a verse 6 that says, and here's why what they said was unbelief. But I think we've seen enough up to this point, and there's even enough in, in this passage to explain to us, to point us towards what it is about his brother's take on Jesus that counts as unbelief, that would warn us against missing Jesus, despite maybe even believing he has supernatural power. The clues come, for example, in Jesus' response to them. Jesus pushes back against them with a reminder that he has his own agenda. My time, or it's a word for opportunity, my moment, that hasn't come yet. Your moment, he says, your time is always here. One time is as good as another to you. You're not pursuing an agenda given to you by the God of the universe. You're just living your life trying to get what you can. Your time's always here. My time hasn't come. Even more of a clue comes out in verse 7. The world cannot hate you. The world cannot hate you. Why? Something about Jesus' brothers. Something about what they want from Jesus. Something about what they've said here. It reveals that they belong to the world. They're of it. The world can't hate its own. They love what the world loves. Jesus, on the other hand, if they got him, if they really believed in him, well, the world would hate them because Jesus is hated by the world. And the world hates Jesus because he's coming at them. He is full on assaulting them with his message of, of rebuke and his call to repentance. He is testifying to them over and over that their, their deeds are evil, that they are way out of step with what the God who made them has called them to be, that they've got to make some major changes, that they've got to have what he offers or they're hopeless. The world doesn't want to hear that. But whatever it is that his brothers hold on to, well, that's what the world loves. The world can't hate its own. What is it? I think we've got to draw from what we've seen already in John. If you haven't been with us up to this point in the series, one of the things we've seen several times already is that Jesus is often embraced on a surface level by people who are wowed by his amazing power. But what they see when they see Jesus' power is not someone who came to offer them what they truly need, but someone who can help them get what they already want. Don't miss that. One of the distinctions John's been making over and over is that Jesus came to offer what he, what he defines as our deepest need. What people want from Jesus often is a pathway to what they already wanted before they ever had seen Jesus. When people are wowed by the amazing signs Jesus does, it's because they think, if I back that horse, I can win on him. He's got a power that could give me what I want. I think that's what Jesus' brothers represent here. What they represent is, is people who see Jesus as a, as a ticket to advancing their own agenda. They want success, and they're looking for a means to the life that they've always envisioned for themselves. And Jesus is valuable to them because he has the power to give them what they want. They want to ride up with him on his coattails, so to speak. It's not his agenda that they're interested in. It's their own agenda. You think about, I don't have a good example of this, but I know it's sort of in the air. Uh, think about like, one of the common struggles of like a startup company. 
right? Who has its own vision for what it wants to be. Have an idea about who they'll be, what their culture is going to be. And then maybe they see some early success and the investors start calling, right? The investors see this new startup business as a ticket to what? Not making the world a better place through whatever mission statement that business has come up with. They see, they see in that business a chance to do what they do, which is make money, right? That's their agenda. The new startup business is a means to their ends, the ends that they already had. So a lot of times what you hear is people who had their own business and were really enjoying trying to make it what they'd always hoped it would be, who once they get investors lined up, maybe once they take it public, lose control to people who only care about making money. I think that's kind of what's going on here. That Jesus' brothers, many others that we've seen through John who respond well to Jesus' signs, they're kind of like the investors. They already know what they want. They think, oh, if I back Jesus, then Jesus can get me what I already want. They don't see Jesus, hear his mission statement and say, yeah, I'm with that guy. I'm going to order my life and reorganize my life towards what he wants from me and for me. Jesus is a means to their ends. They want him to go to Jerusalem and display himself to the world. Because when the world buys in on Jesus, they're in on the ground floor. They're riding to the top with him. What they don't get, what Jesus has been hinting towards so far and will fully explain later, is that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He is headed there to put himself on display for all the world to see. But the display... The display that he will offer to the world when he goes up to the feast is a display of barbaric torture. It is is a display of, of offensive, scandalous proportions. He has gone to lay himself down to he has gone to embrace the kind of shame that few societies have ever been able to top. He has gone to stretch naked before the eyes of the world on a cross, dying a shameful, brutal death. That's the display he's come to offer. That's not the one they want. And the kind of faith they have so far is a faith that won't stick with him when he shows what he's really about. Jesus knows that, and that's why he's pushing back here. I think it's harder for us to see this, the, the tendency of Jesus' brothers and ourselves, if we think about it positively, as in, we don't often think about Jesus as a, we don't often think about, I want this thing specifically, and I think Jesus can help me get it, because he has that power. I think maybe where, where the brother's sort of unbelief shows itself in our hearts is, is more on, from a negative side, more when we see we aren't getting something that we wanted things aren't going perhaps in the way that we had hoped that they would. I think what we see sometimes in ourselves is a tendency to wonder why Jesus, if he loves us, would let these things happen to us. Why would he let us fail like this? Why would he let us suffer or struggle? Why wouldn't he give us this thing that we want if he really cared for us? Anytime we go there in our hearts, what we're saying is that, at least to some extent, we have the faith of Jesus' brothers. Jesus is a means to our ends. If our ends are not secure, then Jesus is not delivering. We're evaluating him based on our agendas, not on his. I want to move us on quickly to the second example of unbelief. 
The second example of unbelief comes out in the crowds of Jews who are celebrating the feast when Jesus goes up to Gal- or from Galilee to Jerusalem. So we're going to pick up reading in verse 10. Where Jesus d- does intend to go to the feast. He just didn't want to go up exactly when his brothers wanted him to go up. He does go up, and what happens there points us towards another way we might miss out on Jesus if we're not careful. Let's read it together. We're going to begin in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Everyone's been waiting on Jesus at this feast. Word has gotten around about him, the kind of things he's doing. They want to see it firsthand. Maybe some of them haven't seen him yet. When is he going to get here? What is he going to do when he gets here? The whole crowd is, mu- is muttering. They're not just wondering, though, when he's coming. They're wondering who he is, what he represents. Is this the Christ? Is he even good? Or is he dangerous? When he does show up and he starts teaching, they start asking other questions. Where does this guy get his learning? He hasn't been to the right schools. He didn't go to the Ivy League. Who certified this guy? Where did he get the ability or who thinks, who gave him the right to say the things that he's saying? How can we take him seriously if he doesn't come through the right channels? See, back in these days, originality was not a good thing. It's all the rage now, right? To the chagrin of graduate students everywhere. All the rage now. Then then it was a major strike against you. What you wanted to show is that you had mastered the tradition, that it had been handed to you and you had the ability to hand it to others, to protect it, to preserve it. So there were gatekeepers of who could speak for the tradition. Jesus had not been through those gates. Who gave him the right to speak the things he was speaking? Jesus sounded right in some ways, but he wasn't an insider. They were judging him, to use Jesus' language at the end of this passage we read, they were judging him based on appearances. He doesn't have the right crest on his jacket, so to speak. He's not one of us, right? 
what Jesus says next goes even deeper into their problem, into their focus on the surface things, on whether or not one is inside or outside, based on things you can see, based on appearances. The whole problem is summarized by Jesus at the end. You're judging based on appearances, not based on right judgment. So what does he mean by that? We've got to look into, this, into what he says to them to understand what he means when he says, don't just judge the book by its cover, so to speak. And I think, just to summarize it before I get into the details, I think what he means in the second example of unbelief is when you really just care about cleaning up your act on the outside so that you create a reputation for yourself that others admire. It's about proving yourself. It's about showing that you're on the inside of something great by the way that you behave. And I think the, way, the, the main details that point us there in the way Jesus interacts with these crowds is the fact that he takes them to the law and he tells them, you think you love the law. You think you love the law. But all of you are guilty. None of you keeps the law, verse 19 says. We're going to come back to some of this passage in a little bit to take some of the positive message out of it. But for now, this conversation Jesus has with them about the Sabbath is the key. What he's doing is he's drawing from something that happened when he was in Jerusalem before. This is not his first trip. One of the times when he was there before, on the Sabbath, he had healed a man who'd been, who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. 38 years this guy had been coming to this pool where he'd hoped to be healed by some sort of pagan ritual. And Jesus just sees him sitting there and speaks to him and he gets up and he walks. And the takeaway by the powers that be was who gave you the right to tell this man to carry his mat on the Sabbath? They're judging based on appearances. Insiders don't carry mats on the Sabbath. Jesus tells them, you claim to be all about the law, but you don't keep it. You miss what it's really about. That's what he's saying. They say, you're crazy. You have a demon. Insert, we love the law. The law is how we know who we are. The law is how we know we are who we are, and we are not that. You're crazy. Then Jesus explains. Jesus explains what he means in verses 21 to 24. He, he, what he points out here is that they've already got exceptions to the Sabbath law. Right? They're cool doing circumcisions on the Sabbath. But what they miss is that what Jesus has done to this man in healing his whole body is what circumcision itself pointed ahead to. Circumcision in the law was talked about as, as a pointer to the perfection of, of the human being, as a, a step towards perfection, a, re- a restoration of what, what had gone wrong at the fall. God's promise to redeem the whole man. Circumcision is just a little pointer, a little physical pointer towards it. And they're so locked in on the particularities of that law, on making sure they keep it in all of its rigid details, that they miss that one is among them who is bringing what that whole law was pointing to. He is bringing in the restoration that the Sabbath looked to, a time of rest, a time of plenty, a a time where you can trust that God is for you and will provide everything that you need, a time in which there is no place for sickness, for paralysis, for death, a time when when God will be all in all and we will rejoice in what he is for us. That's what Jesus' miracle had pointed to. I made a whole man's body well. And for that reason you want to kill me? 
what does that show? You don't get it. You don't understand what the law was really about. You claim to love the law, but it's just something you do on the outside to point to your insider status, and it has nothing to do with the inside. Oh, in another place, interacting with some of these same people in a different, different gospel, Jesus describes them as cups that are really super shiny, clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside. And what God cares about, what summarizes the whole law, is love for him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And they have none of that. That's why Jesus says in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, if anyone loves what God loves, if anyone really approaches the law because it's all about him instead of about them and their desire to prove themselves, if a man comes to God in that sense, well, that's the one who will know that I'm true. He will know whether the teaching I give is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. One who loves God gets it. But you don't. You don't keep the law. You fail in its most fundamental requirement. You don't love the God of the law. What you love, here's the ticket to unbelief in Jesus. What you love is your image of yourself. You want to prove yourself. And as long as that's what drives you, you will never accept Jesus. One more example of unbelief. One more example. For this one, we skip ahead to the group that is most deeply opposed to Jesus, the Pharisees who wanted him killed. Now, the most, uh, where we're going to spend most of our attention is in verses 40 and following, but I want to read what comes before that so that you'll understand it when we get to it. I'm going to pick back up in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, after Jesus had, had said the things that he'd said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. The point here is they just don't know what to do with him. Is this him? We don't know. How could we know? So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from? (laughs) Yeah, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Point being, if you don't know God, which you don't, you won't really know where I come from. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he had said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, 
this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. You can see it. It's all through this chapter, isn't it? Who is he? What are we supposed to do with him? Now watch what the Pharisees do with him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, the crowd that believes in him, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man first without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you too from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Last example, last way to reject Jesus that John is pointing us to and warning us against comes out in the mindset of these Pharisees who not only want to kill Jesus, they think Jesus is ridiculous. Jesus' teaching had stirred up the crowd into confusion and disagreement. What are we supposed to do with him? Some believe in him, some don't believe in him, but everybody's focused on him. And that's what the Pharisees can't tolerate. Everybody's focused on him, this guy who didn't go to the right schools, this guy who doesn't have the right certifications, this guy who none of the authorities believe in. People are going after him and they can't handle it. So they, ten, they send these officers to arrest Jesus, but the officers go to him. They hear him speaking. and What must that have been like? I don't know. But they're blown away. Nobody speaks like this man. Just the words that Jesus said were enough for them. He hasn't even done a miracle here. Like they haven't seen him turn food, uh, a, a little snack into a meal for 5,000. They just hear his words and they're like, this is not normal. This guy's got something. And they can't bring themselves to arrest him. And the Pharisees' response to them, the Pharisees' response to them points us to another way we could be prepared to reject Jesus rather than believe in him. Did you notice it? Their response is ridicule. Their response is arrogance and condescension. Their response is not to engage them on what they'd heard. They don't care to hear from these officers what they experienced from Jesus that might have made them think the way they do. Their immediate, instinctive reaction is to shame them. Oh, have you too been deceived? Are you too so weak-minded that you could go and hear this man and come away believing in him? Same thing comes out in their, other, in their next rhetorical question. Have any, of the, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Have the ones who know, have the elites, those with knowledge, have they believed in him? No, they haven't believed in him. So how can you believe in something that those who really know, the, the gatekeepers of what is true, something that they've rejected, how can you believe in that? Another surefire way to reject Jesus is to give in to intellectual pride. To believe that, that your knowledge is too great to accommodate something so foolish as what Jesus offers. Men and women have been rejecting Christ for 2,000 years because they think they are too smart to believe. 
They think they're above being duped by what the masses turn to to get through their common, mediocre, mundane lives. Those with real power, with real knowledge, they don't need the opium that gets the masses through their days. It comes through. Verse 49 may as well have been written by Karl Marx. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They don't know anything. The word for crowd here, one of the commentators said, is better described as the, the people of the land. The commoners. The people who sort of earn their bread by the, the dirt under their fingernails. They're accursed. We're the ones who know what's up. And none of us believe in Jesus. So how can you? That's not an argument. That's not an argument. Friends, if you're, if you're in an environment now where the, the powers that be, where the, the, the smart ones, the elites, think that Christianity is ridiculous, do not let them get away with shaming you out of your faith. This is not an argument any more than many of the arguments you may have heard at whatever school you've attended. They depend on shame. Only the foolish, backwoods grandmothers of the world can believe in this guy. We have reached enlightenment. Right? That is arrogance. God will judge it. But as long as you embrace it, you will never, ever be able to embrace Jesus. Now quickly, here's how you can embrace him. Jesus points us there. I want to close there just by pointing you to it. Okay? I want to point you to two places. We've already read over them. I want to make sure that you notice a couple of things. Jesus is laying groundwork for stuff he's going to say more clearly later in the book. That's why we're able to do it this way. I'm going to spend most of our time with the emphasis of this chapter and then only sort of point ahead at the end to what's coming. Stay tuned. I want to point you in two places. If you want to embrace Jesus, Jesus points you there first in verses 17 and 18. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching, in other words, my teaching, is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to know who I am, you want to know if I'm true, you want to know if you can trust the things that I trust, the way to know is not through your head, but through your heart. If your will is to do God's will, and this is not just like, uh, just sort of willpower. Think more of like, if your heart, if your orientation as a person, if what you're after is what God is after, if you are one who loves the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, if that's what drives you and how you interact with me, then you will know if what I'm saying is true. What matters is not the appearances, right? Not what you have going on the outside that marks you off as someone who knows, someone who belongs. What matters is not what's on the outside. What matters is if you have a heart that loves what God loves. And if you do, then you'll see me as a drink of cool water in desert dreary, right? You will be one who will see Jesus and love him. But here's the problem. Who has a heart like that? Who loves what God loves? Do you? I know that I don't, not not on my own anyway. So something's got to give. If we're to know that Jesus is trustworthy, 
We need a heart that loves what God's love, because that's the only perspective in which what Jesus says and does will seem beautiful to us instead of stupid. But that's the one thing we can't muster up on our own. There is no recovery program that can get you there. What this, what this requires is an act of God. John has talked about it in a couple different ways already. Chapter 3, he talked about the need to be born again, to become a different person by God's Spirit so that you see things in a totally new way. Not because you have reoriented yourself, but because he's given you new eyes. Chapter 6, he talked about the importance of God drawing people to himself before they're ever going to want what Jesus offers. God's going to do that. But there's another image in our chapter that points us towards what it would look like. Okay? Points us toward what it would look like. What can, we, what can be done about the fact that we don't have hearts that will ever want what Jesus offers? Jesus has told us what's necessary. We know from experience and from what the Bible says that we don't have what's necessary. Jesus points us in a different direction towards the end of chapter 7. In verse 37 to 39, Jesus gives us one of the clearest and most beautiful summaries of what he offers to anyone who comes to him. Jesus says publicly and to his enemies who have, who have come to kill him, Jesus says, anyone, anyone who comes to me, anyone who comes to me, that person will be given from his heart, from the inside, not the outside, rivers of living water. Are you thirsty, he says? Come to me and drink. Any of you. You may have come here to kill me. Come to me to drink, and I will give you a source of life unending that will renovate you from the inside, not from the outside. I will change what you love. That Jesus says this, the words of verse 37 and 38, at the Feast of Booths is huge. Now, I couldn't have told you what the Feast of Booths was about. I'm seminary educated. And I couldn't have told you what the Feast of Booths was about a week ago. Okay? But I've done some reading this week. And now I'm going to tell you what the Feast of Booths was about. The Feast of Booths, or often called the Feast of Tabernacles, was a time every year when Israel would come together, would celebrate God's provision for them during the, in the wilderness wanderings. So during, during the wanderings after they'd been delivered from Egypt on their way to the Promised Land, they lived in, in tents or booths. And they would sort of relive that together every year. And they would celebrate God's provision for His people in the wilderness through things like manna or through things like when Moses struck the rock and water came out of it to, to, to give water to all these people living in the desert. They would celebrate God's provision as a way of sort of calling on Him to provide again. But it, became, it, it, it took on other layers as well. It took on layers that were added by the prophets and what they said you can expect from God in the future. The prophets had told them, one of these days, God isn't just going to provide water for you to drink out of a rock. God is going to give you water on the inside. He's going to change who you are. They had prophets like Ezekiel who promised that, that God would sprinkle water on you so that your heart becomes a heart of flesh and not of stone, so that you love what God loves, so that you're not just trying to hunker down and through willpower do the things that the law commands, but you'll do things that are pleasing to God because you want to. That's what God is going to give you. He's going to give you what you don't already have that is the key to you living in the way God wants you to live and getting what God wants you to get from this life and the life to come. He is going to give that to you as a gift. That's what the prophets had promised. And so 
at the Feast of Booths, they would look back to what God had done in the wilderness and they would look ahead to what God had promised. And one of their favorite rituals at this time was every day they would go and gather, get water from this special pool in Jerusalem called the Pool of Siloam. They would carry it into the temple and they would pour it at the altar. It's a way of claiming the importance of water, both to God's deliverance in the past and to his promise to deliver again in the future. Water was one of their most important symbols for new life that God would give, a life that would never end. And so this is the last day of the feast. They're packing up. The last day of the feast. It didn't last. None of these feasts do. And it's in that context that Jesus stands and says, he cries out to all who will hear him, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I am the one you were waiting for. I am everything that this feast pointed ahead to, and I am here now if you will come to me. Friends, that same promise cuts across the years to you where you sit right now. God can give you new life. He can make you other than what you are. You can't give you new life. The best you can hope for is a cleaned up exterior, a cup that's a little bit shinier on the outside. But what Jesus can do is take you from the realm where everything is judged based on appearances, from that rat race of trying to get ahead, of trying to prove yourself to everyone else, of trying to be elite, from the rat race that Jesus' brothers and the Jewish crowds and the Pharisees had been living on their entire lives. He can take you out of that exhausting, soul-killing rat race. And He can give you something new on the inside. And all you need to do is come to Him. The one who comes to Him, Jesus has promised, He will never, ever cast out. Father, Jesus has also told us that no one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws them. So send your spirit to us to draw us. I pray that for those who don't know Jesus, they're sitting here among us this morning, that you would change their hearts right now on the spot. And draw them to Christ so that they can drink from Him and know of His saving power. Friend, if you do not know Jesus this morning, you can. Pray to Him now. Come to Him and He will not turn you away. And Father, for those of us who are claiming Christ, who are holding on to Him, who are trying to hold on in faith, I pray that your spirit would continue to shape us, would continually be drawing us to drink of him. And by the sweetness of what he is and what he offers, you would protect us from believing the lies of this world and protect us from running to cisterns that are broken, that won't hold water. Will protect us by giving us on the inside streams of living water, of life that begins now and will never end. These are gifts that must come from you, and so we turn to you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.